Bike racers, listen up. I want to tell you about a cool bike event coming up. It's Crooked Gravel going on July 24th in Winter Park, Colorado. Come ride the pristine gravel roads in Colorado's high country, breathe in that thin air, and come do a 65-mile or a 93-mile course that starts right in the heart of Winter Park. Crooked Gravel, of course, is part of the Roll Massey family of bike events. And right now you can get 25% off on any of the Roll Massey events if you join our Outside Plus digital membership program. The Outside Plus bundle includes so many perks from subscription to Velo News and Outside Magazines to a free annual account with Gaia GPS, training advice from today's plan, two books from Velo Press, a finisher picks photo packs, and the uh, list goes on and on. You can see the full lineup of perks by going to velonews.com forward slash outside plus. Again, velonews.com forward slash outside plus to learn about how you can get discounts to crooked gravel and get the full lineup of outside plus perks okay let's get on with today's podcast Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a busy Thursday morning here at the home office. It's Thursday, July 8th, stage 12 of the Tour de France. We just watched the big German Nils Polet power away out of a breakaway to take a stunning breakaway stage win and give Bora Hansgrohe something to be happy about at this Tour de France that has otherwise been kind of a wash for them. Uh, great podcast coming up today. Second half of the show. Andrew Hood has a uh, one-on-one interview with Sepp Kuss about Jumbo Visma's success on stage 11, winning the big Mont Ventoux stage with Wout van Aert and the rise of Jonas Vingago. We hear from Sepp. We also have soundbite from uh, Ineos Grenadiers Luke Rowe. The engine that motors Ineos Grenadiers along will not be in the rest of the tour because he was time cut on the Von 2 stage, so we have those two interviews. But before we get to that, I have Sive O'Shea back on the podcast, and Sive and I are going to break down some of the bigger stories of the last few days of the Tour de France. Sive and I were watching the breakaway today. Um, came in today thinking it was going to be a stage for Mark Cavendish. All of a sudden, this big breakaway go- goes up the road. Sive, I saw you on social media with all the memes and the gifs going on out there. What were you trying to communicate to your followers about today's uh, Tour de France stage in your gifing and your memeing? Well, I'm living my life through memes at the moment. Um, well, mostly what I wanted to convey is how how exciting today's stage was. I mean, the the start they they ended up delaying the start because there was. Uh, quite a bit of a tailwind, but in the end we got something of a crosswind, which sort of really changed everybody's plans um, going into this stage. And it made what looked like it was going to be a sprint stage into a day for the breakaway. Um, And yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of a lull in the middle, but the the end then, you know, from about 50K to go, it was really exciting trying to uh, seeing all the breakaway riders trying to sort of play their cards and see what they could do. Um, and ultimately, Nils Pollitt won, which is, I think, really great because he's had so many close calls in the last few years. I think he's only ever had one other professional win. So this is his second professional victory. Um, and what a great one to have. Yeah, I believe this is his first World Tour win as well. Nils Paulette to me, I mean, I will forever remember him from that close call at the 2019 Paris-Roubaix. I was there. 
he powered that breakaway, then got into the final move with Philippe Gilbert. And you kind of knew Gilbert, he's cagey. He has a good sprint on him. He really wants to win. Like when they came into the velodrome together, you kind of knew that Gilbert was going to find a way to win that one. Um, and, and like so many second place finishers at Paris-Roubaix, like you kind of think to yourself, well, you know, second place, that's great. Maybe he'll win it someday, but you kind of know in the back of your mind, you're like, there's no guarantees for poor Nils Pollitt or Sylvain Dillier or any of these like breakaway guys. Sylvain Marc. Sylvain Marc. You're just like second. That's great, but that's also a heartbreaker there. And so there's no guarantees that Nils Pollitt is ever going to win again. So to see him win this Tour de France stage was, it warmed the cockles of my heart, the, the German cockles of my heart for old Nils Pollitt. Yeah. And it was really nice actually that um, on uh, the television. There was an interview with Andre Greipel after the stage because Greipel was in the um, in the breakaway. And I kind of, in my heart, I sort of wanted him to win. You know, with the sort of retro Tour de France with Mark Cavendish winning again and all of this. You know, it would have been quite nice to see Andre Greipel winning again and from a breakaway. But apparently, he, he said after the stage that he was giving Nils Pollitt some advice. You know, they used to be um, clubmates back in Germany. And so he was giving him a little bit of advice because he kind of knew that there was going to be an awful lot of attacks and the chances are he wasn't going to be able to hang on to them. So he was like, well, if I'm not going to win, I'm going to make sure my mate wins, which is quite nice. I love it. The Germans looking out for each other. I love a good German victory at the Tour de France too. I mean, a couple of years ago when uh, Marcel Kittel was winning all those stages. It's sort of like it re- it revs up what is sort of a sleeping giant, a sleeping cycling giant, which is Germany, which they're like the popularity of cycling seems to like ebb and flow by the success of German riders and German teams. And, you know, there's, there's sort of like a country that has the potential to be this big cycling giant. But after like the telecom scandal and when there aren't any German riders doing very well, the sport seems to really fall off the map. So hopefully Nils and some of his countrymen can sort of get the the Germans back uh, breathing fire about cycling. And he's winning for a German team, Bora Hansgrohe, and winning for a German team that needed a victory at this exact moment. So uh, we woke up today to the news that Peter Sagan was not going to start stage 12. He's been battling a, a injury that he suffered in stage three when he crashed on the wheel of Caleb Ewan. Um, Sai, if you were following this story, I mean, what happens to a race when Peter Sagan bows out with an injury? I mean, what, what overall impact do you think that has on the race and the team itself? It's kind of strange, actually, with this race because Peter Sagan hasn't really had much of an impact on this tour. Um, so under normal circumstances... You know, losing Pierce again like we did in, I think it was 2017, when he had that incident with Cavendish and got thrown off the race. You know, that I think had a massive impact on the race. But this year, we haven't really seen him. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know over the next week or so whether or not he would have been able to, to find something. I mean, in theory, today actually would have been a really great day for him with the crosswinds and the lumpy terrain. Um, and if he'd been on good form. You know, he might have been able to do something. But actually, I think what it does is um, it frees up the rest of the Borough Hansgrohe team. Obviously, they've got Wilco Kelderman going for the GC, but that's not their kind of main goal. Um, and while Sagan was around, um, you know, the team was sort of still concentrated around him. And um, now that he's gone, it gives, you know, the guys like Nils Pollitt um and maybe Edith Skelling later on in the race to, to kind of have a go and have some fun and see what happens. And of course, one of the Sagan stories that we've been following 
this year over the last two years is sort of Sagan's place in global cycling. Obviously, he's still this big celebrity. He still draws a ton of attention. He's still a very good cyclist. He has four wins this year, but, you know, hasn't won a tour stage since 2019. Not really the same force at the classics that we've seen in the years past. And I can just tell you from like looking at our own like web metrics, um, Sagan is still draws a ton of interest from readership, but like Matthew Vanderpool draws a whole lot more. Wout van Aert draws a whole lot more. Um, even Chris Froome. I mean, it's sort of like Sagan's overall, people's overall interest in Sagan seems to have waned a little bit at this point. And it's a story that I've been thinking about a lot, especially in the last six months, which is like, you know, Peter Sagan is racing, but it's sort of like, are we still living in the Sagan era? Of pro cycling, you can very much look at like 2016, 17, 18, and it's like Peter Sagan pops a wheelie or does something on social media, and then all of a sudden it's a huge story. Peter Sagan wins Paris Roubaix, he lines up at, the, at Flanders, and you know he's going to be a contender. And now it's sort of like, I don't know, his social media is pretty much just like brand pitches for his sponsors, and he's not really doing that great at these classics races. And I don't know, I, I just I wonder about like what Sagan's overall profile is in the sport now that like bigger stars have come to the fore. More exciting racers are out there and like he's getting a little long in the tooth. Yeah, I mean, it seems a bit funny calling somebody who's, what, 31 years old, long in the tooth. But um, yeah, he's definitely, over the last few years, he's still got some good performances in him, but it's not this sort of all-dominating rider that we used to see when he was younger. Um, And I mean, personally, I've always thought that tactically, Peter Sagan's never been the best at tactics. Um, And when he was younger, that was fine. Um, You know, he could just destroy everybody because he was so strong. A little bit, you know, like Van der Poel and Van Aert. I mean, more, maybe more so Van der Poel. You know, he does do occasionally kind of slightly odd things, but because he's so strong, it doesn't really matter. Sagan was a bit like that when he was younger. Um, And now that he's kind of having to rely a little bit more on strategy you know, it's a bit harder for him. And he kind of, yeah, he doesn't always get it quite right. And of course, the big Sagan news coming out of the race in the last few days has been uh, this report in Wielerflitz from our uh, colleague, Raymond, who's actually been on the podcast before. We love Raymond. Raymond knows Raymond knows all the good stuff about cycling. Um, is that uh, Peter Sagan, maybe there are links um, for him to be joining the French team Total Energies for 2022. This, of course, is the Tour de France stalwart Total Energies, formerly Total Direct Energy, formerly Direct Energy, formerly Europe Car, Boyga Telecom, Bonjour. This team has gone back forever. They're a Division Two, what we would call a Pro Continental, or what's the official name now? UCI Pro, pro Team. UCI Pro Team. That's the new nomenclature. Yeah. I still call it Pro Conti. Um, pro Team and. Uh, the story is linking Sagan to joining this team for 2022 and also bringing his whole Sagan entourage, which he has tended to do since the uh, since leaving Tinkoff, where it's like he travels with his personal PR guy, his mechanic, his manager, um, his domestiques. You know, Daniel Oss, who's been doing these great videos for us, is one of them. Yuraj, his brother, um, Bodnar, a couple other guys. It's sort of like if you sign on Sagan, you get this whole package and you get specialized because specialized bikes is sort of linked to Sagan and sort of his personal sponsor. So there's been this story out there that, Hey, they're just a signature away from having Sagan leave Bora Hansgrohe, 
go to this pro Conti French team and, you know, I would assume elevate it to the world tour or just elevate it in general. You know, Saif, when you saw this story come out, I mean, what were sort of the knee jerk questions or topics that popped into your brain about the prospect of Sagan leaving Bora Hansgrohe and going to this French team for 2022? Uh, I guess my first thought was, huh, that's a little bit weird. Um, you know, it just doesn't, it, it do, the team doesn't kind of speak to the, the brand and the energy that Sagan brings to things. But in many ways, it kind of makes a bit of sense as well. Um, you know, the team's getting lots more investment from Total. Um, you know, so they're go- they're going to want somebody with a big a big name, you know, face that can kind of represent that brand. Um, so somebody like Sagan, you know, is would be huge. Um, you know, even even Sagan not really winning has still got massive brand power. It's the same as Mark Cavendish. You know, even in his years when he wasn't really doing much, you know, bringing Mark Cavendish to races, having Mark Cavendish on your team. You know, that's that's huge. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it also makes sense because like you mentioned, Sagan has this whole entourage. And when you, bu- when you buy in Sagan, you've got to bring in the whole entourage. And that's kind of, you know, anywhere between you know, six, seven people to kind of over 10, depending on, um, kind of, yeah, what, what you hear. But it's, um, yeah, so you, he needs a team that's got the space got the desire, got the money to bring on all of these people. Um, you know, that some of them might not ordinarily get a contract with that team if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, they were part of Sagan's entourage. So most of the world tour teams aren't don't have that space these days. You know, it's a GC wins uh points, you know, really brings in the kind of the UCI ranking and gets the the big publicity. So, um, yeah, the, a lot of them, they, they don't have the space to sacrifice a few guys to bring on Sagan. So in many ways, it sort of makes sense, but it does feel a little bit strange as well in the context. You know, it's this kind of what used to be an uber French team bringing on um, Sagan and this kind of, they, they were also quite serious and Sagan I mean, he has this whole shtick with his why so serious. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting if it happens, how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense from a standpoint of like, that's what happened with the Bora deal. You know, we were all, I remember back in 2017 or 2016, wondering where Sagan was going. And then it is announced that, oh, he's going to this German Division Two team, you know, NetApp, which we had known about and they'd been like making steady progress. I think they'd already been in the Tour de France at that point. But like, that's the only team that has this the the ability to bring on that many riders and that much staff and that much infrastructure these world tour teams are just too packed with riders and they can't cut people and they have long-term contracts and so it would make sense that he would just try to execute that again and go to a different division two team because they can actually accommodate it um yeah real weird move to this french team that has like been so french for so long it's the team of jean rené bernardo we're going to have to have james start on the podcast cuz he um knows this team inside and out to talk about like what the cultural fit or cultural not fit would be of seeing this you know i mean I always think of this as the team of Thomas Vauclair and uh, Christophe Riblon and some of these like, you know, French swashbucklers of years past. Um, but in recent years, you know, they have Nicky Terpstra on the team. They've like gotten to be a bit more international. Uh, the Bonifacio brothers, 
who else is on there? They get some Spanish writers. Chris Lawless. Bosenhagen. Yeah, Bosenhagen. That's sort of a like a, a big tip, a big textbook move of like, wow, this team is international, uh, getting it to be a bit more international. So bringing Sagan and these Italian staffers and these Slovenian and Polish riders, maybe it's not, maybe it's sort of just accelerating what this team was doing already, which was trying to get uh, a bit more international. Yeah, I mean, um, that's sort of the way cycling is going these days. You know, in, in days gone by, you used to have super French teams, super Italian teams. And, you know, the that doesn't really happen these days. You know, you, the, the teams, they identify with with certain countries like Bora Hansgrohe, they identify with being German or um, Ineos being um, British. But... You know their their rosters aren't so stacked with the riders from that nation like they used to be in the past, and I think perhaps this is the team and Jean Rene Bernadeau kind of catching up um, with you know the the way that cycling's going, just kind of yeah, getting a bit up to date maybe. Well, I always thought that was a point of tension at Bora Hansgrohe, which is you know I would be at the Bora bus at the Tour de France or other races and ask Ralph Dank, its manager, who's Ralph Dank is very German. You know, he built the team from the ground up about Peter Sagan and Peter Sagan questions, Peter Sagan this. And he would always be like, oh, yes, but let's not forget about, uh, you know. Yeah, Manuel Buchmann. But Buchmann, you know, he was always like quick to remind you when you were asking a bit too many questions about Peter Sagan that there were like good Germans, you know, like fast Germans on the team as well. So I had always sort of like filed that away as, Dank's pretty happy about his German riders, even though he has like this world beating guy on the team. Um, Of course, you know, going back to March and April, there were these stories in the media that like Dank wasn't that happy with Sagan because he hasn't been winning and that there were talks that maybe Sagan was going to join another team. Dank, I think, put out some public statements saying, no, 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 we're in talks with him. So, you know, the most recent story of ties to this French team, maybe it is for real and that's what's going to happen maybe it's a negotiating move to get dank to like open up his purse and give another lump another million euros on top of it we're gonna have to see um i'm sure that story will uh be finally announced after the tour de france um moving on there are a couple other things i want to ask you about sive you have a great story on velonews.com today bit of a profile of the danish wunderkind who's lighting up the gc right now jonas Vingago. Yes, that's right. Jonas Vingagard for all those people reading it in American English. Actually, it's pronounced Jonas Vingago. And, uh, you know, the announcers have been hinting at some great elements of Vingago's recent past about him having to work a day job to support his cycling, about him, you know, blossoming very recently and very quickly at Yumbo. Uh, you spoke to Jonas, you spoke to his, uh, some people around him, you've been finding good quotes out there. What can you tell us about old Jonas? Um, well, yeah, like you mentioned, he's, uh, he had, as while he was racing as an under 23, he kept a you know, a part-time job to, you know, help finance it basically. So he used to get up at 5am and take this job uh, at a, I think it was a fish auction. Um, and so he used to wash the fish, get the fish ready for the fish auction. Um, I don't know what a fish auction is like. I've never been to one before. Um, yeah. So then he'd spend, you know, several hours. I think it was maybe six or seven hours up until around midday washing fish. And then he'd finish that. And then go out on his bike. Um, and it's, you know, perhaps that was more so a thing 
you know, in the past where writers, you know, there wasn't the, these umpteen academies and, you know, the, the federations weren't feeding funds to, to writers that we would see writers having part-time jobs. I know Mark Cavendish had a part-time job when he um, started racing. He used to work in a bank um, when he was 16 to try and help fund his racing. Um, but it's less it's less usual these days. You know, you don't really get that many writers who who do this. So it's quite, yeah, it's quite interesting to see. I feel like working as a fish washer at like a fish factory is the most Danish part-time job you could ever have. That would be like if we had a great American cyclist and he's like, yeah, yeah, I've been working at the hot dog factory. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I help bag hot dogs. Um, or, or <laughs> I don't know, like a gun factory or something. I mean, if in the Man, if it were, if it were Manx, it would be like, yes, I uh, work at the Bee Gees fan club. Uh, because as we all know now, the Bee Gees are uh, from the Isle of Man. But I just love the fact that he worked in a fish factory. Well, actually, funnily enough, Mark Cavendish working in a bank is probably the most Manx thing because I think pretty much every one of us has worked in a bank at some stage or some sort of financial institution. Because there's millions of those jobs going. Um, but yeah, and um, because, you know, Vingegaard was spending so much time um, at work and balancing that um, work and training life, he didn't it probably reach his full potential as an under-23 compared to, you know, the likes of Pogacar or um, Mate Moric. Um, and so we've seen in the last few years this kind of quite fast development because he's been able to invest his full amount of time into his training and his racing. Um, but I do find it quite interesting and funny that, um, you know, when he started this year, he was supposed to be going to the welter. You know, he wasn't supposed to be riding the tour. And then obviously we got that bombshell news in January that Tom Dumoulin was taking some time out. And then in April, they finally announced that the finger uh, was going to replace him but he was coming to the tour as support for, for Primoz Roglic. And now suddenly he's finding himself in third place with a, definitely a realistic shot at taking second. Um, you know, whether or not there's any room to maneuver in terms of taking the yellow, that's, you know, that's going to be a very difficult prospect. Yeah. And just looking at his international results, you can see a huge step up from 2018 to 2019. So to 2016, 17, 18, he's making steady progression, you know, finishing and doing well at some of these international races for U23s, um, you know, your Tour de Fjords and, uh, you know, post Nord Denmark Rundt, um, 2018, um, does it Lavenier is part of this Danish team that wins the team time trial, but otherwise, you know, like surviving, doing okay. But then boom, 2019, um, winning a stage of the Tour of Poland, winning uh, the overall at the Hammer Stavanger, you know, really sort of impressive results, like doing well in Basque Country and well enough in, you know, week-long stage races like Romandy, but it's sort of 19, 20, 21. That's where the rocket ship starts to take off. And so, uh, Vingago having a great tour. I mean, the big story of stage 11 yesterday, other than Wout van Aert winning a mountain stage, which I'm still just like, okay, you know, yeah, this guy is cyclocross, sprints, time trials. Humongous mountain stages. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of his jam. Um, was Vingago attacking at the top of uh, Mont Ventoux and, you know, distancing Pogacar? And since then, there's been a, a lot of online chatter 
about that specific moment. You know, Vingagar go, Vinga go, Vinga go goes, Pogacha chases after him and marks him. But then Vinga go kicks again and Pogacha sort of slows up and lets him go. And now there's this big debate of like, was Tade Pogacha really um, gassed and popped? Or was this sort of a strategic move of knowing that they were pretty close to the top and that he was likely to catch him on the descent? They did catch him on the descent. Um, when you look at that moment, Sive, and when you've read some of the analysis and quotes to come out of it, which way are you leaning? Are you leaning more towards the Tade Pogacha really was gassed? Or are you leaning more towards that this was a strategic dropping to, uh, you know, uh, knowing that he was going to catch Vingago on the descent. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, I'm kind of, I think it's a little bit of both, but I'm probably leaning more towards um, Pogacar did have a moment, you know. Um, I think he did uh, He did sort of overextend himself. Um, perhaps the the heat was a factor. I know there was quite a few riders that, that suffered in, in the heat um, on Mont Ventoux. Um, and so, yeah, I think perhaps he decided to pull up before he really did something to himself. You know, the, there is plenty of, like, he's got plenty of wiggle room. So, you know, it's, it's not too much of a, a concern. Um, but I think that, you know, had he had the the legs, he would have stayed with him because it's Pogacar and I don't think he would want to lose any time to anyone on any stage. Like, that's just the way that he races. He doesn't kind of strategically give away time. Um, and yeah, so I think I think he did have a bit of a, a wobble yesterday. Um, I think it was only a, a small wobble, you know, but it does show that, you know, there's a the potential to, to crack him, but whether or not there's enough road to sufficiently crack him over the next week um, will be, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that there is, but it'll be interesting to see if after that, small kind of crack if the other riders smell blood and we'll have a go and try and um, really take this race to him now. Yeah, I mean, that's the big question now. It's like blood in the water. We saw this at the Giro with Bernal, who was so bulletproof through the first three quarters of the race and then, you know, showed this moment of weakness. And then all of a sudden, you know, Yates and some of these other guys start attacking him. But they all ran, they all ran out of road. The uh, advantage was too great. And, you know, this Von Tustage, uh, luckily for Pogacar, you know, it's like sprint stage, sprint stage, hilly stage, you know, there's a couple of stages to recover and rebound after that moment before we head back into the mountains. And it, I don't know, it, you know, Vingago seemed to have the legs to, to give it to him. Carapaz didn't seem to be able to uh, hit him and punch him at that moment. So if Vingago is the guy to be able to attack him, he has a pretty big deficit to make up. And he only has a couple of mountain stages, big Pyrenean stages to be able to do it. And he doesn't have the Yumbo Visma super train anymore to do it because that team has just been completely gutted by crashes and injuries. They lost Tony Martin on uh, yesterday's stage. And so that team is totally depleted. And when I look at the front of this race and I look at that stage 11 up and over um, Vontu, one of the other storylines that, that came about and I wrote about this on the site was Ineos Grenadiers trying to revive the old Skytrain tactic, trying to like 
you know, seize control of the front of the group, use their team strength to just like wear people down, wear people down, set out a really hard tempo, whittle the group down until it's just like a two or three riders and then unleash their guys. And it didn't work yesterday. Well, it didn't work in that Carapaz wasn't the guy to be able to attack and finish it off. It did work in that it completely blew UAE Team Emirates out of the water and Yumbo Visma out of the water. And it it sort of made laid bare this interesting dynamic of this year's race, which is like Pogacar is the strongest guy. His team's strong, but not that strong. Um, Ineos Grenadiers is the strongest team, but they may not have the guy to be able to finish it off. And they're now nowhere near where they used to be with the old Skytrain. So it's like, it's this Tour de France of favorites and favorite teams where everyone's kind of flawed. Everyone's very flawed. And I actually, the more, more I've been thinking about it, the more and more it's actually made me like this race more and be more excited as we head into the Pyrenees. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I mean, like you say, Pogacar and his team, they're, you know, they're, they're a decent team, but they're not this kind of all dominating um, squad. And there's, there's no kind of rider within that team that can even hold on with Pogacar um, you know, in case he needs something or in case he gets into trouble, you know, he's always isolated um, on these kind of final um, mountain um, finishes. You know, I thought perhaps maybe Micah might be the one to help him given, you know, Micah's past performances, but he doesn't seem to have that these days. And yeah, Ineos is, I mean, we knew this going into the tour, the like they had so many options but they just, they did not have a single rider that was like equal to or better than Pogacar. You know they um, they have Carapaz, who's you know very strong, very attacking, um, very active in the mountains. Can who probably in it, him on his on his best day can go with Pogacar in the mountains. And then you've got um, Geraint Thomas, who's a bit more of an engine, so he doesn't he's not as explosive in the mountains, but obviously he's got that time trial. Um, but None of them, obviously, Thomas has really suffered with the crashes. Um, and I don't know, Carapaz doesn't seem his usual self. He doesn't seem like that guy who was going all out at Tour de Suisse. Maybe he was too good too early. Maybe he peaked too early before the Tour. But he just doesn't seem to have that um, level to react to, to Pogacar's stinging attacks. Um and then obviously, yeah, Yomba Visma is just sort of flying by the seat of their pants and hoping for the best now. Well, and Ineos doesn't – I don't know if they're going to be able to mount that level of an offensive in the uh, Pyrenees because they're losing riders too. They lost Luke Rowe. He was time cut. He has traditionally been through the big engine room to power them in the Flats Hills and the base of the mountains. And so they still have this good lineup. But I'm really curious to see if they try to do the same thing in uh, the Pyrenees. You know, in my column yesterday i wrote that yesterday on mont ventoux was last gasp of the sky train you know they tried it it didn't work out they ran out of riders pretty far from the summit and carapaz was not able to finish it off and how this you know this actual small moment in time bookends this era of cycling where you know people were writing all these think pieces of we need a you know, we need a salary cap for cycling because it's so unfair that Sky can buy these domestiques and control the Peloton and the Sky train is snuffing the life out of cycling. And, you know, all the other GC riders need to gang up and try and take on Fortress Froome and the Sky train. And think about how much agony the Sky train caused 
all of cycling and then to see it yesterday like just be you know uh, a shell of its old self i felt was worth pointing out but you know there's a chance that this tactic you know hey up the tempo even if it's even if they're not as strong as they used to be they're still the strongest ones in the race so Try it again and again and again in the Pyrenees, but, you know, they don't have that many opportunities. Sunday, we have a legit Pyrenean stage uh, to Andorra. Looks like one, two, three, four categorized climbs um, with some of the, the real historic ones. And then, you know, then we have a, a day off and then next week is going to be the real opportunity for Ineos to try and do this. But, um, you know, we're recording this Thursday. This is our final podcast of the week. Tomorrow, Friday, we go to Carcassonne before uh, going to Kion at the foot of the Pyrenees and then uh, Mountain Stage Sunday. Um, Carcassonne. Love Carcassonne. Last time I was in Carcassonne, I saw you tweeting about this. Um, Ho- Hoodie and I stayed. We, we had to find a laundry place and uh, we did. And I like left half my laundry there. Like there's many clothes, Fred Dreyer clothes just floating around Carcassonne. I can't wait to go back there and see if anyone is wearing some of my like old shirts. Yeah, no, we learned, we nearly got um, – this was back when I used to work for a, another publication. We uh, <laughs> nearly got lost in the wilderness because we, we set off in search of our hotel thinking, uh, well, it's only going to take 15 minutes, you know, 20 minutes. It'll be fine. But, like, the, the gas needle was really low. And it turns out the, the road we had to take was up and down and up and down. So it was it was not very fuel-efficient. Um, and there was absolutely no signal where we were. We couldn't figure out where our hotel was. <laughs> and we ended up with uh, Barry Ryan wandering up and down a very dark country road trying to see if he could find out where our hotel was. Um, we did eventually find it. Um, but I thought we were, you know, there was a small moment where I thought, you know, this is our tour over anyway, whether or not it, you know, we're just going to be here forever. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it was a fun hotel as well because I think there was carpet in the bathroom, which is gross. Um, And there was no main light in the bedroom. There was only a lamp on the far side of the room. So I had to walk across the room in the dark to turn the lamp on, which was fun. But yeah, had a great time. Yeah, we stayed in a weird Airbnb that was extremely hot. Um, and I re- had no Wi-Fi. So in order to write my stories, I had to walk across town to the Katusha team hotel. And uh, just, I, you ever do this when you're on the tour where you just like walk into a hotel and sit down in the uh, lobby and just like check your watch and your phone and look around like you're meeting someone there. You're like, I'm a, I'm here. I, you know, I, I'm meeting someone here. And then you just open your laptop and spend like three hours writing stories. I remember doing that. And like, you know, the, the Katusha guys were coming and going. I was saying, what's up to them? Hey, yeah, how's it going? What's up? I got to, you know, file a bunch of stories. If anyone asks, can I say that? Yeah, I'm your, um, I'm your ninth writer, Dieter. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't think we've ever done that at the tour, but I've definitely uh, we did it a couple of times before. Um, Pirate Roubaix, Yombo Visma has got to like always stay in a in Ibis, I think it is very near the start, and so sometimes you know we're up super early, and so we go and we <laughs> we uh, sit there and uh, use their Wi-Fi. Yeah, love it. Hotel like people, you know, people who've never traveled around the tour for us. It's sort of like. French accommodations, French food, French roads, French people can be kind of hit or miss. And so you have to find creative ways when you have a miss. And yeah, my hotel in Carcassonne was a big mess. I, I remember also Andy Hood and I went out for beers afterwards and uh, we did not realize that like 
um, we, we didn't have the key with us or something like that. So we had to buzz some random person to let us in. It was a whole, it was a bouchon. It was a whole kerfuffle. That, that, that happened to us one year at the tour. Um, well, we, it wasn't that we forgot the keys, is that somebody locked all the keys in their bedroom and we couldn't get in. I will not name any names. All these stories makes me want to get back to the Tour de France. Of course, Sive, myself, Jim Cotton, we are at home this year due to COVID-19 restrictions. Andy Hood and James started there, but we hope to be back at the Tour de France uh, next year and beyond. Well, Saive O'Shea, thank you. You've been a wonderful co-host of the Velo News Podcast. Thank you very much. Um, let's hear Andy Hood with Sepp Kuss, and then we'll hear from Luke Rowe, uh, and we will come back to you Monday of this coming week to break down everything that happened over the weekend. Thank you for listening to the Velo News Podcast. Oh, it was really good. Um, you know, I think we were, uh, first of all, sad to lose Tony uh, to a crash, but um, you know, already with, with Wild, the, the stage win, which was incredible. Uh, for me, it was really cool hearing in the, in the radio the whole time uh, how he was doing and then the director encouraging him. So that was uh, really exciting. And then Jonas, of course, uh, just killing everybody. So, uh, yeah, we have a lot to look forward to now. Yeah, I mean, how was it in that pace of that game on the 7500 too? I mean, he just took up the charge and raced it back. Yeah, it was, um, uh, I think, just a tough day overall. Uh, it, it wasn't an exploding pace, but it was uh, just such a, a long, hot day that uh, you, you just had to have something left in the end. How are you feeling so far in this tour? Oh, I, I feel okay. Um, I mean, not not amazing, but uh, yeah, you you can't uh, uh, do magic things. So uh, uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's still a lot of hard stages to come, and uh, hopefully, I feel better. But uh, I'm not stressed about it. Jonas yesterday, I mean, even that just said he was maybe a little incorrect. Must be encouraging for the team. Yeah, for sure. I mean. Uh, yeah, we, we just want him to stay calm and uh, take every day as it comes. But, I mean, if he has those same legs, then, then he can really do a lot, even in the, in the third week. But, um, yeah, it's his first tour, so we don't want to put too much pressure on him. What's the, what's the biggest surprise? Jonas is doing well in GC or Wild winning over Malcolm too? <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I think Wild, he can do anything. Uh, if he sets his mind to it, he, he, can, uh, he can really do anything. Um, and uh, yeah, with, with Jonas, it's, I mean, we, we always knew he was really strong. Um, but then I think when, when he changed something uh, in his mind that, that he can really go for it, then uh, he's, he's unstoppable. So that's, that's been nice to see. And, you know, everyone said that that time doesn't really have a weakness, but do you think there might be a little crack in his armor? Uh, well, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's one day uh, out of many, and, um, you know, he, he also has to gauge his, his efforts as well. Um, but, uh, but for sure, he's, he's human, you know, we, we all are, so, uh, yeah. Well, that's the Tour de France over for me, uh, stage 11. Out for time limit, unfortunately. And uh, we're jumping in the car soon and heading to the airport, heading back home. It's a brutal sport, and that's the, that's the reality of it sometimes through the day. Um, it was a solid start, there was a lot of attacks to go in the breakaway. Um, 
felt alright throughout the day. As the moves were going, there was guys getting dropped, and felt like I held my own in the early stages. Uh, the plan from the outset was to try and uh, take it on. First time we've done that this race, so take it on and uh, try and go for the stage or try and move up in the GC, which you know, we can get the stage, but Billy ended up moving up a place in the GC. So I started to ride like I've done a hundred times before. Uh, the plan was to move Billy up in the GC, which we did. Uh, and at that point I was feeling okay, feeling solid. Yeah, And we hit the early slopes of the first big categorized climb. And it was literally like I hit the wall. It was, the lights went out. It's like someone flicked the switch. And guys who I would normally, be perfectly honest, out climb relatively easily were leaving me for dead. So it was over 100k to go and I was on my own. And uh, yeah, just never lost belief that I could arrive and finish within the time limit. But uh, yeah, missed it by five minutes or so. So uh, just gutting really. It's it's tough, and in this, it's the first time in my career I've missed uh, the time cut, and what a race to do it in. So it's it's gutting. It's going to be hard. Uh, just leaving the guys, really, leaving it down to the the, the seven boys, and, and leaving them and me buggering off home. So it's uh, it's tough, but I think I'm leaving leaving them in a good place. Moved up to fourth in GC today, so uh, the tour's a long way from being over.